Hi, everyone. Before we get to this week's episode of the Everyday Musician Podcast, just a little heads up that I started a new blog called violinpodcast.com. It's a brand new blog where I get to speak with violinists from around the world and also uh, has a blog. The website has a blog which will contain sheet music deals um, where I scout sheet music deals online on Amazon, on Sheet Music Plus, on virtualsheetmusic.com, etc. So, uh, Go over to violinpodcast.com. Make sure to subscribe. Thanks. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of the Everyday Musician Podcast. I am your host, Eric Morgala. Joining me on the episode today is Chicago-based cellist and educator, Daniel Hoppy. Daniel, good to have you with us, and it's also good to hear your voice again. Yes, and likewise, Eric. Thank you for having me. Tell us a little bit about yourself and the things that you do in Chicago. Yeah, so I am, uh, uh, as you said, a Chicago-based uh, cellist and educator, and I am playing with a couple of different regional orchestras. I play with the Oyster Rock Symphony of Chicago and the Northbrook Symphony. Uh, but most of what I am doing right now is teaching uh, Suzuki cello, uh, both in the city and in the Chicago suburbs. Uh, and along with that, I am a uh, actively trying to grow as an educator. This summer, I'm going to be training in uh, a system called Music Garden, which is teaching babies from zero to four or five. And I'm also enrolled in an Alexander Technique teacher training program that I have about a year left in before I become an Alexander Technique teacher. That's excellent. Yes. And uh, you mentioned Alexander Technique, and I want to emphasize to the audience that we do have a couple episodes of Alexander Technique. Uh, one of the episodes are is with Sarah Cook, who has done some Alexander Technique training. And also um, on the recent podcast, this was perhaps two podcast episodes ago. This was uh, Grace Cross, who's a harpist based in Minnesota. And I encourage you um, all to be able to listen to that because it provides a lot of great insight. So, Danny, uh, what are what got you into teaching? What got you into cello? And um, tell us about your story. Yeah, so I grew up in a in a very musical family. Uh, my parents originally met because my mom had started a community orchestra and needed another cellist, and she saw my dad on the train with his cello and convinced him to come play in the orchestra. Um, and so when I was growing up, there was this sort of somewhat of an expectation that all of the children in the household would pursue music. And, and so we did. Um, my older siblings studied as children and didn't become professional musicians. But the way I sometimes think about it with my younger brother and I, my parents finally got it right. And so... Um, I, he, my younger brother is a violinist, a professional violinist. And for me, when I was in high school, it wasn't so clear to me who had chosen the importance of music in my life, whether it was something my parents had chosen for me or I had chosen. And so it wasn't until I went to college that I realized it was something I personally really enjoyed and that was important to me. So once I was able to make that decision for myself, I uh, started pursuing actively uh, the professional uh, musicianship track 
Uh, so I did a liberal arts undergrad and took a year off afterwards to uh, practice to sort of rededicate myself before uh, going to the Boston Conservatory for a master's degree and then to the University of Kentucky for a, a doctoral uh, degree. And along the way, I think because my dad had also sort of experienced the challenge of raising a family solely based on, on gigging, I was always very open to the prospect of teaching. Um, and so with his encouragement, I began my Suzuki training under uh, the tutelage of Tanya Carey, who was also giving me private cello lessons. Uh, and it was this amazing connection between learning how to teach fundamental cello technique to four, five, and six-year-olds and trying to understand that though basically those same techniques for myself as a 22-year-old um, and to sort of pull apart the parts of my cello playing that had a uh, weren't serving me and sort of reset my foundation. That's, that's, I benefited so greatly from uh, Dr. Carey's help with that. And it was great to be able to explore that for my own playing and explore how I would communicate that to the next generation of musicians. That's excellent, Daniel. Um, just for people who have come across the podcast for the first time, this might be their first episode can you describe what the Suzuki method is and what it's all about? Absolutely. Um, the Suzuki method is a model for what we call talent education. Uh, some of its, its, its founding ideas are that music, the t talented musicians aren't born with that talent, um, but that everyone in the world has the ability to become a musician to play music at a high level and express themselves through music. And so that is a founding assumption. And the second one, and maybe the an idea that grows from that starting place, is that every person learns language. Uh, that because our everyone's inborn ability is <clears throat> evidenced in the fact that everyone has learned their their mother tongue and it is true that everyone learns at a different pace and a different rate and that's true for music also um, but it again goes back to that idea that it is possible for everyone to to do it and so suzuki education building from those sort of philosophical outlooks on the world says that well, since everyone is able to learn their mother tongue, their native language, if we use some of the same ideas in how children learn language to learning an instrument, we could have similar uh, success in allowing anyone who wants to, to learn to express themselves through music. And some of the elements in that type of learning that the Suzuki method emphasizes are a, a lot of repetition. If you think of babies learning words, they say the same word 
thousands of times. And no matter what sound they make, even if it is the faintest resemblance to mom or to that or to dad or whatever it is they're trying to say, parents and those around them give them wonderful praises. Every attempt is met with excitement and uh, encouragement. And so that's another aspect of the Suzuki philosophy, that in all of the repetitions, it's greeted with excitement and enthusiasm. And every minuscule step in the child's development uh, in playing their instrument is, is celebrated. Uh, another aspect is the community aspect, that learning is best done when the student is surrounded by other people who are learning the same things, and that their environment is, is saturated, is filled with the thing that they're learning. Uh, again, if we think about language, children are surrounded by speaking a lot, and it's through that exposure that they then begin to mimic and and learn themselves. And so for Suzuki education, listening, having music present in the home and having their peers also learning um, is are crucial aspects in supporting their, their growth as musicians. So I'm curious to know what your teaching philosophy is um, in addition to the Suzuki method, because I know that some people are like hardcore Suzuki teachers or some teachers kind of like to branch out, kind of take different ideas. And you mentioned Alexander Technique. So I want to, I'm curious to know how you incorporate Alexander Technique alongside the Suzuki method. Yeah, I'm finding a lot of wonderful resonance between those two modalities. The way I notice it most in my teaching is I end up putting a lot of emphasis on how my, my students are thinking about what they're doing. And I use the Alexander technique as a way to learn what they're thinking based on observations I make about their, their body, their physical presence. And so I'm able to um, see some tension in their eyes or forehead or shoulder or a particular way they're using their hands and address how they're thinking or approaching the music um, based on those physical things so that we can undo some of the, the tension that, uh, that creeps in. And my overarching philosophy is that cello playing should be easy. I think I fully believe that to be true. And I also know as a cello student and as a teacher that it takes some figuring out, some problem solving in order to allow it to be easy. That when we first sit down, we end up making it harder than it needs to be. And a lot of the learning process is un undoing that hardness is returning to finding that way that cello playing can be easy. And of course, with different ages, I present that idea in different ways. Um, for my very young students who are four, five, or six, 
um, I am aware of my desire for them to, for that cello playing should be easy. Um, and I should note that, that that phrase, that concept is something that I have um, gotten from my study with Dr. Carey. That is her, her framing of, of teaching and cello playing. And I continually find how powerful it is. So I should say, I, I want to go back to how I communicate that teaching philosophy to my younger students who aren't able to engage with it on a, a mental side. And, and it's just to note that even as I'm observing them and guiding them through uh, these little, little games that, that we come up with to teach young children, at the things that I'm looking for are for them to do it, do those games with ease. Um, and it becomes a challenge for me to, to balance finding the ease and comfort with those games and activities and satisfying their desire to do more. What I'm always looking for is how they're doing something. And the students are just looking for the fact that they are doing it. So there's a, a little, sometimes a little tension there. And that becomes the art of teaching in guiding the students to do something in a certain way with a certain quality and, and satisfy their desire to, to be doing it. Yeah, I also find that you bring your entire life experience into the classroom, whether it's for 30 minutes for a four-year-old. I know I have many four-year-old students ranging from four-year-olds to, you know, 16 to 17-year-olds. And sometimes I have adult students and um, the concepts are pretty much the same, but I found that the approach to each student is different, but the concepts are the same. You know, anybody can learn an instrument. Everybody has a capability of learning an instrument. And I think that's what's so brilliant about the Suzuki method. And I also teach Suzuki, but I also have branched out to other methods to see what what works for different people. I know that sometimes, you know, I wouldn't teach Suzuki to an adult. Sometimes I would maybe refer to the Wolfhart method, but more or less take the same concepts of how to hold the instrument, how to hold the bow from the Suzuki method. Every every yeah, everybody's different. And um, I thank you for sharing all of that. And I want to I want to dive into um, a little bit more about you. Yeah. How has your experience as a teacher helped you perform? Um, you just, you mentioned that you were a part of a group. Yeah. So I play with a, a few different groups, um, and it's always a balance between my making sure I am giving time to my students and making sure I have time for my own artistic uh, pursuits. So I play with a few different symphonies in the area. I've also uh, done some some chamber music with with colleagues in Chicago, as well as branching out into some played with a pop group, um, especially last year, and and, and a jazz group. Um, so some non classical avenues. And my project for for this year has been to prepare a. A recital for solo cello, which I'm going to be uh, performing probably the beginning of May, end of April. And I find the 
a, a mutual pollination between my work as an artist and my work as an educator. Uh, and in fact, even thinking of them as as separate things I, isn't isn't too helpful for me. What I I aspire to is that uh, an aspect of my teaching is to it's to sort of share subliminally my dedication to music as an art form um, and to inspire my students simply um, through my own dedication and my own work. Um, and I think a lot of that happens non-verbally. Non and I, so I find that in, when I'm teaching, often the things that I work on, the sort of shaping of a phrase, the creation of intention and character um, and intonation and organizing of the, the physicality of the instrument are also really the things that I am working on. And vice versa, I, I notice that when, when I am doing really good practicing, it enlivens my awareness to what my students are doing. Um, sometimes I, I think it's a little un, unfair to them when I am working really hard um, and holding myself to a very high standard, I notice that sometimes my lessons I get a little stricter than a week when I'm not practicing as much, and then I end up being a little bit more relaxed in my in my teaching for my students. But I think those moments really uh, drive home how connected the the two aspects of my of our profession are, how important it is to continually be growing as an artist in order to be to continue to grow as an educator also so brilliant about the suzuki method is because you're not just teaching the violin right you're teaching a lot of life skills you're teaching about life in, yes. in a private lesson one of the uh one of the things that uh the founder of the suzuki method would say is uh beautiful tone, beautiful heart. And I, I think about that, especially when students come to me, you know, this often happens in seventh, eighth grade, and maybe in high school, that it seems maybe the, the decision to be setting the cello was, was made for them uh, a while ago. They still enjoy doing it, but the motivation to practice isn't, isn't so... Um, so present, they have a lot of other things going on. And when students like that come to me, I, that it becomes, I think, the learning of the life skills becomes even more a part of our lessons. Um, because I, I still believe that music is valuable for them, but it seems clear that their priorities aren't with the instrument at the time. And so I end up trying to use our time together to talk about lessons of goal setting and structuring one's time and um, what to, how to like overcome challenges and setbacks and, and problem solve um, 
in a way that I I hope those lessons become they I really help them their heart grow even as I'm we're working maybe more explicitly on their tone um, and in a way that I think that music has um, offered that to me um, in a way that my my musical heroes have have shown the sort of a path forward for me of living in a beautiful way and by playing in a beautiful way. I think um, what you said was really beautiful, you know, beautiful tone, beautiful heart. I actually haven't heard of that in a while. And it's, it's a nice refresher for me, even as a, as a teacher and pedagogue. So uh, thank you for sharing that with our audience. So when you're teaching in the classroom, Daniel, what are some of the things that, ex that you're most excited about the future of classical music? You know, we've heard conversations from many people that oh, classical music is dying or, you know, the, you know, the listenership of classical music is getting lower. Um, I truthfully disagree, mm -hmm. but there are some people out there mm -hmm. that may think that way. So what can, you what can you say to convince our listener who is not familiar with classical music to um, like what the future looks like in the year 2020? Wow. That is a big, big question. It's a big question. And I think um, I, sometimes I feel that that question kind of puts some musicians on edge because like there's so many exciting things that are happening yet. Where do we begin to even explain that? Your question was also about what it's like from my perspective um, in the classroom, right? Working with the next generation of musicians. Right. Yeah. So um, you're, you're, you're literally looking at the next generation of musicians in the classroom, right? So yeah. what do you, what are you noticing or what are you seeing that, that will help this genre grow? Well, so I think that this is both what I see and also what I feel in my own, in my own life is that in, we have a wonderful opportunity to be exposed to so much types of musics, styles of musics. Um, I don't know if musics is a word, but that's all right. Um, so there are so many different influences that we can draw from. And I know for my students who are uh, studying classical music with me, uh, for the most part, they're also interested in a lot of other styles of music, whether it's things that they've heard in the movies or um, the, the things that they're listening to. And for me, I think that that is a wonderful thing because it makes it opens our eyes and and worldview and makes us richer for for being interested in those things and being exposed to them um, i I think sometimes we talk about the uh, plight of classical music because it doesn't hold the same uh, our same attention 
but I actually think it's a wonderful thing to, instead of closing off the doors from other influences to, to open them up and to um, place classical music in dialogue with, with other things. And I think there are a lot, there is a lot of that going on um, in a really cool way. Um, and even for my students, I, I try to facilitate that. I, I have a little orchestra um, at, at the Chicago Center for Music Education, and we are playing um, a jazz tune and a mariachi song and a, a fiddle song, as well as their study of classical music. Um, and I think all of it in the end is an attempt for my students and for myself to provide the language of communication through sound. Um, that no matter what style or modality we're coming from, that is ultimately the aim. Um, and I think for the future, if that is our our framing for for music, then classical music will have a, a long long life because the practitioners are using it to communicate something with other people, and that's such a beautiful a beautiful thing. Um, yeah. Thanks, Daniel, for sharing your thoughts with us today and for coming on to this week's episode of the everyday musician podcast i really appreciate you uh, making the time for us today i hope to get to talk to you real soon and to catch up on the things that you're um, up to and hopefully we'll have you back on the everyday musician podcast in the future so thanks very much for your time